Hello and welcome to the Body Electric Podcast. My name is Nathan Hiltz and I'm your host. Um, this podcast is interviews with jazz musicians about uh, what goes into the work and uh, how they do what they do. Um, and uh, most of the podcasts take place here in Toronto. And uh, yeah, it's really great to be here. Today's guest is John McMurchie. He's a great woodwind player here in Toronto. And uh, we sat down at his beautiful home in uh, Parkdale and talked about music for a while. So um, enjoy the program. If, if you'd like to um, learn more about it or me, uh, you can go to uh, www.nathanhiltz.com and uh, hear other episodes of this podcast or uh, see live performances around town. Okay, um, so enjoy the show. Talk to you soon. Bye. swear if we want. Oh, great. That's fine. You, you can eat it. Yeah. You can, <laughs> you can say anything you like. <laughs> All right. John, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Yeah, nice to have. Welcome nice to, to have house. you. Yeah, nice to be back at your beautiful house. Thanks again for that uh, couch you gave us uh, the other day. The, what is it, futon? Yeah. Yeah, we haven't set it up yet, but uh, eventually grandparents will be sleeping on that. So <laughs> we really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, well, if you need help setting it up. Cool. Thank you. Um, yeah, so how's your summer going? It's going well. Yeah? Going busy. Good. It's good to hear. Lots of gigs, lots of writing. Cool. Lots of writing. Lots of chasing down money. Okay. People owe you money? No. No, I'm, um, I'm looking for funding to do a video. Oh, really? I I sent you. Oh, great. Um. The and American one. Video. Yeah. Yeah. This is America? Is that yeah. This is Voice of America. Voice yeah, of America, yeah. It's a, it's a protest song. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody on Facebook the other day said, where the hell are all the protest songs right now mm-hmm. with what's going on? And I said, well, in fact, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, Dominic Mancuso. Of course. Beautiful yeah. singer. Well, his brother Vince is an artist. And, uh, I saw some pictures from his show and went, holy crap, that's what I saw in my head when I was writing this. And uh, so we got together and spent uh, like nine in the morning till six in the evening without a break, storyboarding it. So just, just talking and drawing and trying out different ideas. And he was, you know, that he would, I would say something, he would draw it and I would say, yeah, that's it. Wow. So the, those uh, comics that you sent me, those are actually storyboards for the video shoot that yeah. you're going to do, which will be live action? Is that no, animated. Animated, okay. Oh, yeah. It's animated, and, and like what we're going for, um, like the 1960s you know, Marvel style, mm. the Marvel cartoons, you know, where instead of you know, 18 frames a second to recreate human, or to recreate motion, mm. you might have three, four, or five seconds on one frame and you're zooming and panning on one picture. Right. And it's more about the lyrics and the pictures than mm. the animation. Right, because the animation is there just enough to keep uh, people's attention from wandering. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I always loved uh, like Spider-Man. Yeah. 
back in the day and yeah. uh, Rocket Robin Hood yeah, and, and, and killing uh, soundtracks on all that stuff yeah. too. I mean, it was like a surf big band or something like that. I well, mean, you know, the, the Spider-Man theme was recorded in Toronto. No way. Oh, yeah. No yeah. way. That was the Lori Bauer Singers. Oh, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. And it was a sore point with Lori for many years because he took a bio about it. He figured, this isn't going to go anywhere. Oh, damn. Right. Damn, damn, damn. <laughs> the money he could have made off that. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Brutal. Oh, yeah. Brutal. So, yeah. That, um, I'm not sure who wrote it, but I know it was the Lori Bauer singers who, mm. who were on the track and the whole thing. The thing was recorded here. Wow. So, so, what in, so you're saying that you know, there's no protest songs out there anymore. What are you trying to say with this tune? Then? What I'm trying to say is it'll... You know, American foreign policy, and you know that's it's America now. Like mm -hmm. sixty years ago, it was Germany. A hundred years ago, it was England. You know, before that, it was you know Spain. Everybody's done it, mm -hmm. but right now, it's America, and it's expansionist, and their economy is is based on the arms trade. Mm. I think without the arms trade, their economy would collapse, and. There's a lot of, like, there's a former head of the CIA who was on a, on a film years ago called Why We, Why we Fight. He said, basically, the CIA exists to go around the world and find trouble spots and stir the pot. Mm -hmm. And then they go in and they sell weapons to both sides. And they'll get their own you know, armed forces involved if they have to, but they prefer not to. Mm. But, you know, what's going on in Afghanistan and, and particularly... Uh, one of the things in particular that, that this song in the video um, addresses is predator drones. Like the oh. insanity of somebody, some gamer basically, because the, the, the U.S. Army uh, recruits gamers. Mm. And some gamer sitting in a bunker in Las Vegas blowing up a building in, in Afghanistan or Pakistan. Terrifying. It's terrifying. And imagine one of those things flying in. Yeah, all, you just, with machine guns here and all the time. Family. Boom. It's just, yeah, so scary. And they're talking about, oh, well, they're, you know, our, our smart bombs now, we can put it right inside the front door. Well, they can. But what they don't tell you is that it obliterates everything, you know, 50 meters either, either side. Mm. So they're putting in the, the front door of one building, but they're blowing up the one on either side, which, you know, mm. may have a family in it. Mm -hmm. You know, people have nothing to do. Like it's, and and they're so dis the uh, pilot can be so disassociated from it. I mean, there's yeah, no risk at all. Yeah, well, there's a thing in Harper's a few years ago where where some of these kids are really getting messed up by it. They do it for six months or a year, and then they start thinking about what the hell they're actually doing. Mm. And you know, like there's a line in there. You know, a twist of the wrist and a housewife, you know, expires. Have you always stayed up with uh, the news in the world? Is that something throughout uh, your life? Have you always? Well, I'm a history buff. Oh, really? Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm a regular reader of Harper's Magazine. I read the Saturday paper. I don't, I don't listen to it. I don't watch TV news. I just never do. Um, I used to listen to CBC News a lot, but it's a bit dilute these days. Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. Government is interfering with our public broadcaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I find that uh, 
there's not as much investigative journalism as it used to be. It seems to be a whole lot of like reading off Twitter messages that their fans put in and their commentary. You know. Yeah. No, it's, it's not like the government is going in and censoring. That's not what I'm saying. What they do is they just cut funding. Mm. So if they don't have the money to, to pay for investigative journalists, it's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when you you know when you notice something in the world, is the first thing always a creative response? Like, uh, do you pick up the horn and and play what you feel? Is that is that something you've always done? Or it is, is new lately. Thing? Lately, yeah. I used to I used to pick up my poison pen a lot. Your poison pen. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah, I, st I, st I still get you know letters to the editor published fairly regularly, but I used to do that a lot and writing to politicians and writing to my MP and um, I have a bit of a troubled past, so it's only in the last you know six or eight years where I've managed to really push that into or um, direct that into into you know, music and, and lyrics. Well, lyrics I was only really recently. Mm. Because I, this is what I do. You know, this is what I am. So mm -hmm. I may as well try and do something useful out of it. Absolutely. Um, it's not. It's not the normal thrust of my music. Normally, I just think, if I think about it at all, of what's going on behind my writing. If I think about it at all, it's just okay. There's a lot of crap in the world. You know, maybe I can add a little beauty. Mm. You know, a little piece, maybe, you know, if you, if you move someone, you know, oh yeah, to a positive feeling, then you've accomplished something, you know? Absolutely. So, uh, no, this one <coughs> actually started out as something completely different. I was sitting at the piano and I just played this line and went, ooh, I would say Jocelyn would sound really nice singing this particular melody. Mm. And uh, then I went for coffee and started reading Harper's, and there's this article about what's going on in <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> went, oh man! Yeah. Um, and it, it kind of turned ninety degrees, and then it took on a life of its own. And uh, <clears throat> as I was writing, I had this—I could see this animated film going along with it. Mm. And. Yeah, I kind of, I sort of approached someone who'd, who'd done some some videos for Ori Day, and, and there was some interest there, but it wasn't really, and then when I say, when I saw these pictures from Vince Mancuso, I went, holy crap, that's it, mm. that's the look. Mm. And when I got to his place, he'd already started with the drawings, and he was already, you know, in my head. Oh, it's so great to find that kind oh. of connection. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. wonderful. <laughs> I think it's wonderful that you're doing this kind of thing because, um, like the the creative response, the artistic response can really distill sort of like a, a different feeling than the the numbers or the facts can really give you that you maybe get on the news. You know, uh, can maybe you know get a little closer to the human experience. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's really cool, man. Yeah. So, uh, are you planning to release this track uh, on your next record as yeah, well? Yeah, it'll be on yeah. the, it'll be on the new record, Art of Breath, Volume Two which is due out in the middle of November. Hmm. But um, uh, John Bailey, who's mixing it, has been really getting after me to release it now, like even as a lyric video. Right. Um, which would still cost me about five grand for 
for the minimum number of pictures and just to edit it into something you could release, right? Right. Um, I mean, I released a video for one of my tunes from the last album, and a few of the comments on YouTube were boring. I can't get past the first ten seconds, hmm. right? Because it was Mark T. Sweater playing this piano, lovely piano figure. Well, <laughs> sorry if you find that boring. There wasn't enough to keep, you know. Yeah. Some people's attention. Right. That's uh, part of the the world that we're living in now. We kind of have to hit them hit more of their senses than just their ears to keep them yeah. with us. You know. Yeah. So I think cool. That's fine if that's what it is. If that's where we are, embrace that and see what I can do. Like it'll be like to do the full on you know, six and a half minute animation will be probably minimum 20 grand. Wow. Damn. And it's currently in the hands of a millionaire acquaintance who is irate with what's going on these days. Mm -hmm. So maybe he'll come through. I don't know. If not, the, you know, it's my newsletter went out yesterday with a kind of shout out. If anyone wants to, you know, help with this, please contact me. Right. Very cool. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Cool. So maybe you could tell me a little bit about uh, Art of Breath and what, what that's all about. What uh, started uh, you uh, on to, with that project? Well, two records ago, uh, well, I guess three now, Silent Partner started out as a trio record. It was going to be clarinet, bass, and piano. Uh, me, Ross McIntyre, and Mark Keyswetter. And then I got into it, wrote another tune, and thought, you know, this would, this would sound better with drums. So we recorded it with, we brought in Daniel Barnes, we recorded it with drums as a bossa, and I didn't really like it. And I was playing it for uh, um, Danny Nescu, guitar player, who knows quite a bit about Brazilian music, and he we played through it, just the two of us, or he listened to it. He said, well, the first thing is, it's not a bossa. You're playing as a bossa, but when you look at the rhythm, it's not really a bossa, it's a shoreline. Hmm. And so he played through it. We, the two of us just played through it, him playing you know, shoreline guitar rhythms. I went, yeah, okay, that's it. He said, but if you're going to do that, you really want somebody playing Pandero. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so... I called up a friend of mine who does a lot of Latin music and said, who would you recommend as a Pandero player? And he said, Alan Hetherington, so, okay. And then wrote another tune, and I thought, you know, I'd really like some flugel on this. So by the time we finished the record, there was a seven-piece band on some of the tracks. Mm. So I wonder if there's still three of them, or a trio. And we, we did the... the uh, the CD launch, and I'd expanded some of the other tunes for the whole seven players, and it was just, so, it was so much fun. Mm. Uh, okay. Great. Wrote a whole bunch of new stuff and did an album with a seven-piece band with vocals on two numbers. One's a ballad uh, with Whitney Ross Ferris that she wrote the lyrics for. Mm -hmm. The other one, I wrote the lyrics for um Again, kind of dark, a friend of mine. Actually, the first person I met at Humber died of an overdose. She mm. succumbed to fentanyl. Ooh. Yeah. Um, and uh, Yvette Toller sang that. 
this time around, starting back in probably October, I wrote something like 16 or 20 tunes in three or four weeks. Wow. Oh, yeah. I was going on. How did it happen? Three or four hours of studio. I'm not going there. It just happened? <laughs> That's too personal. Okay. Uh, suffice to say, I got lit up. Okay. Um, and these tunes just kept falling out and complete with lyrics. And normally, I don't write lyrics. I, you know, this one about the OD uh, for the last record. I had Whitney working on that. Mm. And it wasn't really working. And finally, she said, I'm stepping away from this tune. You have to do this. Mm. It's too personal. So I, I, you know, I did. It worked. You did it. But this one, there are three songs in this new record where the music and the lyrics all poured out within 30 or 24 hours. And I went, okay, that's where we are. <laughs> um, and then started orchestrating them, and it turned out that Art of Breath is now a 10 piece band because <laughs> I've added <laughs> two vocalists and French horn. Right, right. So. Um, we'll see how that works out. What's the funnest part for you? Is it is it the is the writing fun or is the arranging fun or is the recording the funnest? Um, this time around, the recording was a lot of fun. Cool. Um, the last album, the recording was the second pass at it. The recording was enjoyable. The three albums prior to that, the recording was really difficult mm. um, partly because I'm producing it myself but partly because um, you know I mean like until I actually left home and came to Toronto and uh, and got into Hummer I I step of the way to be a musician against um, concerted uh, discouragement. Ah, from your family. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Just like some of them like attacked us. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. Brutal man. And well, you know. I thank goodness for school. I mean, in some ways like I mean saying that I'm gonna go get a college degree can help legitimize that. I imagine years before that when you'd say hey mom and dad I'm, I'm gonna move to the city and be a musician that would be a little bit of a tougher sell than going to school for it you know yeah well my my dad wasn't my dad wasn't actively opposing it he just you know for various reasons that I don't blame him for he just kind of wasn't there mm. uh, I'll never forget being 14 and you know in a room full of adults and someone asked me you know, so what are your plans for the future I said I'm gonna be a musician That's no, no, no. No, that's it's well, yeah, but where the hell was I going with this? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, coming to Toronto and uh, like, um, the you know, the oh, yeah, the fun. Why the was, fun. Why where was, was the fun, fun in that process? Yeah, why was it not the first three were, yeah, were kind of like lancing a boil? Oh, right. Wow. Um, was it directed inward or is it like this is not sounding, these guys aren't sounding right, or? 
Um, like mostly, my plane, I hate my plane. And mostly it was it was directed inward. Yeah. Um, when it came time time to do the second one, and it was these guys aren't getting it. Right. And I didn't handle it really well, and um, although the wounds have healed, there were a couple of those guys who didn't talk to me for a long time. Mm. And that's you know that was my fault. I didn't do it well. Um, but like I say, the last three, including this one that is, is almost being released, is, is soon to be released, were enjoyable. And this last one was a ball. It Beautiful. was a blast. Beautiful. Um, it's such a great bunch of musicians. Mm. And everybody's into it. Everybody's into it and supportive. And, and uh, yeah, Bruce Cassidy this time around said, hey, man, you found your voice. You really found your voice with this. I went, well, okay. Cool, thanks. Wow, that's so great. Um, so, you know, it'll be out in November, and I am i can't wait to make hundreds of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully a little more than that, a little more than that. <laughs> Sweet. Well, what, let's play something. We haven't, uh, what do you feel like playing? If I Should Lose You? Yeah, okay. the first clarinet on the Body Electric podcast. Yeah, well, a lot of saxophone players don't like the clarinet. <laughs> it's that octave key thing, right? Yeah, well, it overblows the 12th rather than an octave. Right. So, that's G, that's G, that's G, and that's G. You're like a guitar player, look. Yeah. G, G, yeah. G, G. And yeah. a bunch of different weird G's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's a difficult instrument, but sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm.
fun to uh, do. We've been doing more stuff lately now that we're both doing the Alex Banyan gig. That's a lot of fun, that gig. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah, looking forward to that. Yeah. September residency at the Cameron House, Wednesdays. That's right, yeah. And a bunch of Senator Weinbar dates, right? It's going to be good. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I think so. Well, that's not me. Oh right, that's just the duo. They only do duo. They only do duos or trios. There. Yep. Damn. The bass saxophone takes up a lot of space. It does. <laughs> yeah, man. So, uh, w- did you start on saxophone? Was that your first musical instrument? Or? I started on no. I started on piano. On piano, okay. Um, Great. Just because there was one in the house, and from the time I was probably three or four, it was it was like my best friend. So, oh wow. Um, I never learned proper technique. I never took lessons on it. I never, it was like essentially self-taught on everything. Wow. Did you teach yourself to read? Um, no. Um, after two and a half years of high school band, um, the band director finally figured out that I couldn't read music. Ah, so you're an ear player. So I was strictly an ear player. No, 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 no. Because I was, you know, as often as not making up the parts. <laughs> but it took him two and a half years to figure out that nice, I was reading. Nice, yeah. um, so he sat me down and said, it's like this, 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 and this. This is all there is to it. And I went, really? I thought, I was looking for something really difficult. Mm. Oh, okay. Cool. So, yeah, that was that. And uh, improvisation, well, I guess you were improvising at that time because you were improvising your parts. Yeah. Uh, who's your first sort of jazz uh, uh, teacher? Was it that school teacher? Did you? No, teach no, no. no, the first. I mean, I guess the first person I actually studied any, you know, improvisation technique with was was probably Pat LaBarber hmm. at home, uh, and most of <coughs> most of it was over my head. Um, the uh, you know there were improv classes I guess in first year before I started studying with Pat and they were all about um, what's that called patterns for jazz mm-hmm. take this and learn it and I looked at it I looked through it and said no no not, not interested yeah um, for good or ill I'm with the uh, the Bob Brookmeyer school he he had a a rant on on the internet several years ago now where he said how do we put it in my chromatic world there are 12 tones and I can use any one of them anytime I like <laughs> okay you know um, like even when I'm writing um, like the ear is the final arbiter mm-hmm. so I hear like I hear a lot of a lot of stuff uh, over the last 10 15 years where I can hear like I'm finding a lot of jazz composition kind of predictable mm. um, and You know, it's not surprising with, I mean, there are something like 1,200 post-secondary courses in 
jazz music in North America. And like uh, schools that have jazz programs. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm talking to Perry White, and Perry just shakes his head. Oh, man, I know. It's, you know. No, no, you take some lessons with somebody, and you go and practice, and you take some lessons with somebody, and you go and practice. But, you know. mm-hmm. And, you know, it works really well for somebody. And, and for me, like, I didn't go to home college all those many, many, many years ago uh, to be a jazz player. I went to get my, my doubles together and learn a bunch of, th- like, get technique and contacts together mm-hmm. so that I could be a session player. Mm-hmm. That's what I had in mind. And it wasn't a dumb idea at the time because it was all kinds of session work going on here. Mm-hmm. And it paid really well. And then the year I graduated was the year MIDI was introduced to the world. Ah, <laughs> MIDI. <laughs> <laughs> and everything changed. That's the beginning of the decline, you'd say. Yeah. So, like, I always loved jazz. But... I always, like, I like all kinds of music. Well, when I first met you, uh, you were doing some R&B stuff down at Knowledge. I think that's oh, the first time yeah. I ever worked with you. Uh, I had started playing a weekly at Joe Mama's on the Street, yep. and then occasionally I would fill in over that other band. But I never really knew enough R&B repertoire. I was always felt off balance on those gigs. But yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, when I got to high school, I got clarinet. That was the first thing, because that was an old old school band director he said you want to play saxophone you have to start on clarinet which I hated at the time because mm. I you know I wanted to play R&B right and and I wanted to play jazz um, and I kind of wanted to play alto because um, I was um, I heard when I was I heard Time Out, Dave Brubeck Quartet, and I just I just fell in love with Paul Desmond playing. Mm. It's such a great sound, and he's so musical. Totally. And I got you know clarinet when I was so I played clarinet for six months, and then finally bugged him enough he gave me a tenor, and immediately got into an R&B band. Rock and roll band. There's a bunch of guys at school. They had ten piece band, four horns, congas, you know. Um, and you know, did a lot of work. I mean, I was seventeen and playing in a bar all summer. And where was this? This was in Collingwood. Collingwood, cool. Slowly I turn. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny. Some people who I know down here whose only experience with Collingwood is you know playing at Blue Mountain or playing at the Arms Motel say, oh, that seems like a nice place. I said, well, Collingwood in the 60s and 70s, I said, imagine the Andy Griffith show directed by Roman Polanski. He's got a pretty good idea. Oh, my gosh. Was like. Really? It's like 6,000 people, you know, a town run by the Masons. Right. And, um, you know, a lot of freaks. Right. Um, a lot of good people, a lot of great things about it, you know. But um, yeah, that'd be it. Then. Anyway, um, so playing in, a, in an R and B band, mm. and and one of the the guy who played drums in that band um, 
amongst his eight brothers and sisters, a couple of them were into jazz. And I went over one night and there was this music playing. I'm going, what the hell is this? Well, it turned out it was Charlie Parker. Mm. And it was like somebody turned on a light. Amazing. <laughs> Holy crap, I gotta listen to more of this. And then I started getting, not getting away from R&B, but it kind of expanded. Mm-hmm. Um, and then our second band director in high school was big on, you know, bless his heart, he was a pain in the ass in some ways, but um, bless his heart, he got those of us who were keen to do conservatory jazz. And in doing so, I fell in love with some of the early 20th century legit saxophone repertoire. Great. You know, Dubois, Villa <coughs> Lobos, Hubert, there's some. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm actually working some up with Stu Harrison right now. Oh, really? Um, I'm hoping to do a recital at one of them sometime in the winter. Um, place is it, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's unique. Uh, a lot of guys aren't into the classical saxophone. Uh, well, no. It's it's a different approach. There's a trend towards like a sort of a, a brighter. The cleanness of the sound. I think that it's the sound that those players go for that turns off people. Yeah, well, the, the old school, particularly the French school, they were trying to imitate stringed instruments. Mm. So depending on the size of your saxophone, you know, violin, viola, cello. Mm. And it's only more recently, relatively recently, that people have just said, well, no, you get a good tone center and just play the instrument, play the music, play the instrument, make it, make it the extension of your, of your voice that that instrument makes. So, uh, in fact, I, I'm even writing for that. Hmm. Uh, we had this wacky concert back in March uh, with, uh, with Jessica, with Jessica Malone, Tom Sesniak on piano and, and accordion, uh, Dan Unescu, George Kohler, and it was this the idea was imagine you'd walked into a you know a cellar club in the Latin Quarter of Paris in the nineteen you know maybe nineteen thirty. It's very specific. And the local you know like one of the stars of the opera had come in, had a few drinks, and decided to let loose. So there was you know there was waltzes and javas yeah. and swing tunes like you know like a hot club kind of thing. Then next thing you know there are arias. Right. And I wrote this piece, not for that, I just, one of these things that came out in that period I was telling you, that was a duet for soprano voice and tenor saxophone played in legit style. And, and I played it for her. I said, I don't have any words for it yet, but what do you think? She said, it's really pretty and it doesn't need words. Uh, and then sent me links to Vocalese things by Vila Lobos and Rachmaninoff that said, See? Mm-hmm. So we performed it there, people went nuts for it. You know, oh. There was a little, little bit of jazz improvisation in the middle of it. But basically, it's this, like, just two pure voices. Mm. And uh, it was a gas. Very cool. So, you know, yeah, I, I don't understand. Like, why would you limit yourself? Yeah, why? <laughs> <laughs> 
that's why labels are such a problem, you know? Like, you want to be a ja modern jazz player, you're going to have to write a certain thing, you know? Yeah, it's weird, because, I mean, when I was a kid back in the olden days, like, the hit parade, everything was on the hit parade. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, I was, I was a kid, I was a very young kid, hmm. but um, I remember when Louis Armstrong knocked the Stones and the Beatles off the top of the charts. Right. You know, so you'd have Lewis, the Stones, the Beatles, Herman's Hermits, uh, Patty Page, Nat Cole. Sure, even instrumental stuff. Would Sinatra. Be, would be up there, right? Yeah. Yeah. All the stuff. The only criterion was quality. Hmm. You know, and even the, the occasional goofy novelty tune was really, really well produced. And then, I don't know whether it was marketing people or what, but everything got ghettoized. Hmm. You know, it's a rock station. It's a, it's a... It's a metal station, it's a jazz station, it's this, that, and the other thing. Mm. Um, when I was talking, again, John Bailey said, you know, let's change it. Like the Grammys, and because the, the, the conversation was, for this new record, how do I submit it for, for the Junos? And what category does it go into? Because it's really hard to pin down. Right, you have vocal, you have, you have jazz, not legit things. There's a lot of straight eight. There's a lot of, you know, Brazilian rhythms. Um, and he said, you know, that's going to be less and less of a problem. And the jazz, or the, you know, the, the shows like the, or award shows like the Junos and the Grammys are going to find it more difficult. Simply because of the influence of, of streaming audio and iPods. He said, it's gone, it's gone full circle where people got every damn thing on their iPod. Oh, yeah. Whatever moves them. And you know, first thing, I think it's good for music. Mm. Um, it's not really good for the business right now. Mm. <laughs> um, it's funny listening to you talk earlier about like, you know, what it's going to cost to produce an animated video, you know, and how clearly and and uh, rightly so they value their work as they should, you know. But s somehow we've lost te technology. Is you know definitely invaded uh, animation and all that, but. With music, for some reason, it just totally devalued us for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why the hell that happened. It's really weird. I mean, the last album cost me, I don't know, probably twenty grand to produce, which isn't bad for what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been out for all, almost two years. Got good reviews, and I'm making about eighty dollars a quarter in streaming audio fees. And again, talking to Bailey about it, he said, you know, that you know, $360 a year, if that was commercial radio play, you'd be into six figures. Right. You know, 100000 400 Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. Like, I mean, maybe if Please. it was diminished by half, that would be okay. Like, we could live with that. But it's just like nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. Like, uh, Russ Boswell did some research when they... Um, harmonized the GST and sales tax a few years ago. Trying to, he put together a presentation to make to the government to try and get a, <coughs> an exemption for musicians and other people or raise the minimum um, because that extra 13% means a lot of, you know, contractors and band leaders are saying, oh, okay, well, you're registered and buddy over here is not saving 13%. Mm. Um, 
And he found, going through StatsCan, that in 1973, in 19, uh, 2013, which is the year, 2013, the average annual income for a Canadian professional musician was $30,000. And in 1973, it was $30,000. That's unbelievable. Which in 73 was a decent taste. Yeah. That was good money. Absolutely. Um, and curiously, professional musicians and professional athletes made comparable money in 73. But now it's like the worst player on the worst team in the NHL will make more in a season than I'll make in 20 years. Yeah. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all right. But, you know, we're addicted to this, right? So we keep doing it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm in it for myself. The experience of playing. Yeah. That's why I'm here. And, you know, my wife, bless her heart, says, you know, I make enough for us to live on, so spend your money on making more records. Mm. And it's, I mean, what can you say to that? <laughs> Except, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, That's great, man, that you're, you're really riding a, like a musical sort of high, it seems like, the last few years. It's really great. Yeah, it's, like, if somebody told me when I was 20 that I'd be hitting my stride in my late 50s, <laughs> <it's> like, <laughs> what? What? Do you, do you have advice for younger musicians that are trying to find their inspiration? It's funny. A couple of years ago, um, a premier choral piece I'd written, and at the end of it, this very nice, very earnest young man came up to me and said, I'm considering a career in music. Do you have any advice? I said, don't do it. <laughs> That's and, what they told you, man. And of course, he was, he was, well, not quite. Not in the same way. No. I remember, no, I won't go there. But, you know, when of course he was crestfallen. And I said, no, no, no. I said, if you're considering it, don't do it. Uh, like, find, you know, another profession that's going to make you a really good living and allow you to play music for your pleasure. I said, if you, th- I said, go away and think about it. And if you decide that you're no longer considering it, but that you really have to do this, that there's nothing else that you can see yourself doing, then come back and talk to me. Mm. I said, because it's, um, I mean, my wife is a perfect example of that. She, she made a decision at the age of 20, and she asked herself, am I gonna you know, keep chipping away at this for how many years, and maybe pay the rent without taking a day gig, or am I going to you know, have a decent life and respect in the world? So she went to law school, mm. right? And you know, part of her regrets it every day, you know? Um, which is, I'm sure, a big reason she's so generous to me. Yeah. <clears throat> 
doing a gig at the old mill years ago. Mary Panacci, at the end of the gig, she was collecting her stuff. I noticed the back of her lyrics book. It was a picture of her daughter. And she saw it and noticed. She said, yeah, I keep that there to remind me of why I do these gigs. Hmm. And I said, yeah, I, I'm hip. I got a picture of a shovel in my dinner case. <laughs> Let's play something else. All right. Do you want to do this uh, original tune of yours? Sure. Maybe I would uh, give you a video of us. Ocean view. What ocean were you looking at? I wasn't. I just wrote this. I wrote the tune and it's been kicking around for a year or more. Mm -hmm. And uh, tried to write lyrics for it. Wasn't successful. Whitney tried to write lyrics for it. And she had a whole different, I mean, they were good, but it was a different, whole different take than what I had heard. Mm -hmm. And uh, we actually recorded this. Quintet um, that will be on an, an album that we're also looking for money to, to record. Um, and the Tia Brasta wrote the lyrics for this. Okay. So after working at it and working at it, a couple people working at it and not getting it worked. And I sat down with Tia and she went through it and immediately went to the beach. Said, yeah, okay. That's the vibe I'm looking for. Very nice. Thank you. 
Ocean View. I'd like to hear Tia sing that. She's a great singer. Yeah. Well, in fact, the recording is Jessica singing. Oh, okay. Yeah, her album was the That's cool. So, um, what inspired you to get into all the doing all this vocal stuff? Like, well, it was that you had something to say that you know, or like in the first place you were like, okay, I'm going to collaborate with some singers, write some words. Did you give them an idea of what you wanted, or was it uh, more here's a melody? What what are you going to do? Well, a lot of answers to that question. Um, <laughs> Part of it is, is I, you know, when a two, uh, when a song comes down the pipe, right? It's like the old story. I don't know who said it first. It wasn't me, but you know, I'm the conduit. And sometimes they come down, and I've always been really strong on melody. Melody is really important to me. And sometimes it's. Um, you know, I get one line of lyrics. That's traditionally what's happened. I get one line of lyric and I can't develop it. And um, you know, let's take this back a step. There's a, an R&B singer from the 50s and 60s called Brooke Fenton. Hmm, don't know. Had a, had a bunch of kind of funny little hits in the late 50s, early 60s, and then in the early 70s had a big hit with a tune called Rainy Night in Georgia. And I did, in the 80s, I did a couple of weeks with him at this wacky, huge club of Kitchener, Lulu's Roadhouse. And at the end of the, the end of one of his shows, where I ended up playing piano for him because our piano player, <coughs> our keyboard player didn't know from gospel and this Playing him off stage, he goes, walks past and goes, dressing room. Huh. Well, what, what, what right? So I went in, and there's this, you know, tall, elegant man with this beautiful, beautiful uh, bass baritone voice. Uh, and I said, "You want to see me?" "Yes, I did." "Would you like a cigar, son?" "Oh, nice." Uh, uh, "No, thanks." "Cigarette?" Uh, no, I'm not smoking. Would you like a chaw of tobacco? And I think it might. <laughs> this good. voice and a guy's doing all this crap. <laughs> I said, "Do you want to see me?" He said, "Yeah." He said, "Son, you're a singer, but you can't sing. That's why you play that horn." <laughs> I said, Is "That it? That's it. You go away and chew on that." And I did, and he's right. Wow. That's that's how. Like for me, jazz improvisation. It's. It's all about melody for me. Mm. Like, the more I learned harmony, um, it just enabled me to make better melodies. That's mm. the way I looked at it. So, um, I think that's why singers seem to like my playing. So anyway, I was doing a James B thing. Um, and Whitney, Very nice. 
So I sent her this one tune with my one line of lyrics that this is all I got. And she she brought it over one day, Mark Keyswetter was here, and we played through it, and Mark and I are in tears. They're so beautiful. Awesome. And uh, so yeah, sometimes that's, that's just what comes out. You know, they're important. So, yeah, I guess maybe I, in a way, I'm a frustrated singer, <laughs> and I love singers. I love singers. Cool. Me right? too. It's good thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a good thing. <laughs> no, it's like they're my sisters. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, I just um, and. Um, say for the new record some of the stuff coming out was just they were uh, they were songs with words and then one of them came out that didn't have words and doesn't on the records it's vocalese mm. it's a samba it's a kick ass samba and it's funny because we were <laughs> we were over here re rehearsing two songs one uh is a is a duet with with Jocelyn and Jess, and the other was a feature for Jessica. Because that's the voice I heard mm. when I was writing. The other one, the lead voice, is Jocelyn because that's the voice I heard of. And Jocelyn said, "Well, you've got twelve hours booked in the studio. We're doing two two songs, three songs." I said, "No, there's more going on." said there was going to be another one but I decided it sounded too much like something else so I I deleted it and Dan and Stacy McGregor were here and Stacy said what man are you nuts you never delete files what it's gonna take up like two kilobytes on your hard drive what are you doing <laughs> so I said well wait a second I think I've got my original you know lead sheet that I scratched out so I picked up a flute and, and Stacy and Dan and I played through this. And everybody's going, what are you talking about? This is a great tune. And then it dawned on me, I haven't emptied my trash. Ah, so it's still there. So I pulled the Sibelius file out of my trash bin. Great. And said to the vocalist, what do you think about singing this? Just vocalese. Cool. And it's remarkable because the two of them have such different voices. Mm. But they blend so well. Mm. It's it, and somehow I knew that would happen. So we did the studio, start doing stuff. Okay, this is great. And then, as we went along, it was during that period that you know in the fall that these tunes just kept spilling out. Mm. And um, I <coughs> some I heard vocalists. I heard like lyrics. Mm -hmm. and others I thought I want vocals on this because I like the sound and then we got Olivia Esther in playing horn on one tune and just the vibe of those three people they're just such lovely people mm -hmm. to be around Yeah, and got along so well with the rest of the panel okay right, I'm writing this in for the rest of the day right? mm -hmm. just that's great that you hear their voice in your head when you write something, you know, I, I do that too. Like, uh, 
you know, I write with Whitney Ross Barris as well, and yeah. I'll just hear her voice and see where her voice takes my melody, you know. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, what's your release uh, plan for releasing the record? Like, uh, where where would you do uh, a release show in Toronto? It's going to be at Lula. Lula, great. Um, we did the last two at, at the Bistro, but the stage won't handle a ten-piece band. It's not big enough. It was. It was a. It was tough with seven people when there's drums and percussion, mm. and Ross is playing electric and acoustic. You know, and Dan's playing you know, nylon string and steel string, and and then you get vocals up for and it's madness. Mm. So, Lula, November fifteenth. Great. Um, Howard gets great sound. Yeah, at Lula Lounge. Oh yeah, since they got that new soundcraft board, he's way happy. And you need that for your project. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I like the room. It's, it's, it's good. It, it looks good. Mm. It sounds good, but it's, it's good. It's, it's like, oh yeah, now we're playing someplace. Mm. Right. Totally. Yeah. And they're really nice musicians there too. Yeah. You know, this nonprofit thing that they're doing there, it just seems feels really good to me. And it holds, you know, twenty five or two hundred fifty people, which is good. There'd be a lot of people on stage. Just one tune. Um, that's also a bit of not a vocal tune, but it's also a bit of a, a pro, well, it was a reaction to what was going on in the states in October, mm. and I called it WTF, which, as we all know, stands for you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> and the day before we went in to record it, I thought, you know, trombone would be really good on it. So I called up Paul Tarosov and said, want to do this? And then and he played some fabulous, freaky you know, uh, harmonics and all kinds of stuff. And it's a, it's just, a, it's as atonal as I get. It's, it's out. Cool. somehow it fits into the whole library. I don't know how that happens. Because you got these you know, really nice ballads and a couple of Brazilian things. And that's the other thing is this samba has Alan uh, Hebbington and Benigno Costa. Oh, nice. uh, oh yeah, it's really cool. At the end of it, um, there's this vamp at the end leading into a long fade out that's Benigno uh, uh, on Quico. Mm -hmm. uh, Playing or uh, trading eights with Jocelyn. <laughs> it's really it's it's fun. I love it. I love your creativity. It's uh, beautiful. Yeah, I love it too. Bad. And uh, what's a good way for people to uh, hear your music or see you online? Uh, do you have a website? Website, johnmcmurchie.com. Uh, you can download better MP3s than iTunes, or you can download WAV files. What? Or the flat files. Lossless. Um, it's also iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. Mm -hmm. uh, also on the jazzbox.ca. Uh, you can download files from there. You can order CDs through there. Actually, I had somebody a couple months ago, back in June, a guy who runs a, a band down in Washington, D.C. 
email, emailed me looking for PDFs of one of my charts. Great. Yeah, so. Awesome. It's uh, getting pretty. So. Fantastic. Here. Great, man. Well, uh, thanks for talking to me today. This has been great. Well, thanks for the, yeah, the having me here. Yeah, this is really cool. It's it's I love that guitar. That's like <laughs> the prettiest guitar in the world. Oh, thanks, man. I love the Sadowski. It's great. It's great. Set up pretty nice right now. Um, well, let's play one more tune and then uh, call it a day.
Pão, pão, pão. 